All right, welcome to our class. Once again, Exodus for Beginners. This is the eighth lesson in the series, subtitled this week, The Exodus, The Departure from Egypt. So we, uh, we left our study of Exodus at the point where the 10th plague, the death of every firstborn in each family among, uh, and among the cattle uh, was completed and both the Pharaoh and the people of Egypt urged the Israelites to leave. Their fear, of course, was that this killing of their people would continue until the nation was wiped out. They didn't know, you know that God said he was going to do the firstborn. They didn't, they didn't have that information. Uh, the Pharaoh did, but uh, the people uh, wake up and uh, you know, half their family is dead. And so uh, there's a connection between them and the Israelites. So they're in a hurry for them to leave. Um, uh, so having requested and received gifts of gold and silver from the Egyptians, the Israelites packed what few possessions uh, that they could carry uh, and they left hurriedly. And so that brings us to chapter 12 and uh, the departure from Egypt. Let's uh, read a little bit of that. It says, now the sons of Israel journeyed from Ramses to Succoth, about 600,000 men on foot, aside from children. A mixed multitude also went up with them, along with flocks and herds, a very large uh, number of livestock. It says, they baked the dough which they had brought out of Egypt into cakes of unleavened bread, for it had not become leavened since they were driven out of Egypt and could not delay, nor had they prepared any provisions for themselves. Now the time that the sons of Israel lived in Egypt was 430 years. And at the end of 430 years to the very day, all the hosts of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. So Moses describes the, the haste of their departure and other preliminary details of their departure and journey, a journey uh, to a place that no one knew. They were, you know, they heard of the promised land, you know, and they've heard of this place, but none of them knew it. No one had ever been there. Um, we look at the, the numbers uh, that uh, the Bible gives us, uh, break those down. It says there were 600,000 men with children, along of course with wives. The total number of people may have numbered approximately 2 million people. They had uh, little time to prepare since on the evening before they had celebrated the uh, Passover meal and now they were compelled to leave. We're also given the time they lived in Egypt, 430 years, which explains how they grew from 70 people when they first settled there. We read that in Genesis 46. And also it confirms God's prediction to Abram that his descendants would be enslaved for 400 years in Genesis chapter 15, verse 13. So when you think about it, the Jews were slaves in Egypt longer than the United States has been a sovereign nation. I mean, uh, the pilgrims landed, uh, you know, 1620 to now, that's 402 years. 
the nation itself, uh, 1776 to now, is 246 years old. And so, uh, you know, just to get some perspective there, they were, they were in Egypt longer than you know, uh, our nation was uh, even uh, populated. Anyways, we go to the uh, 10th plague and the uh, memorialization of that in chapter 12. Uh, I mentioned in our last lesson that the birth event of this new nation was the miraculous way that their freedom was obtained and the special observance you know, the blood of the lamb on the door frames and the special meal, the Passover meal of lamb and unleavened bread and bitter herbs uh, that they would have uh, to commemorate that special night when the angel of death passed over their homes when striking dead the firstborn in all the Egyptian homes. Now in this passage, God gives Moses direct instructions as to the yearly observance of this meal in the future. Uh, we will see uh, this scene, you know, God directly instructing Moses repeatedly throughout uh, Exodus. Now, as far as the Passover meal is uh, concerned, some of the details about that. First of all, no foreigners were to eat it unless they and their uh, slaves were circumcised first. Also, it was to be a family meal eaten at a house, not outdoors. In other words, it wasn't like a public celebration. Uh, and no bone of the animal was to be broken. And this, of course, was looking all the way forward to the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross, where John says that in his torture and death, not one of the Lord's bones were broken in John chapter 19 verse uh, 36. It was uh, to be eaten, celebrated each year, and every Israelite was to participate as well as those foreigners who were circumcised and who were uh, living uh, in the nation with them. Whether they were slave or free, they could participate in the Passover if uh, the men had been circumcised. And so the passage ends by summarizing that the people obeyed these instructions and God began leading the people to freedom. Um, in Exodus 13, there's a question of consecration of the firstborn. The Passover meal uh, to be celebrated on the 14th day of the first month, according to their sacred calendar, was the first element instituted to create from these people a distinct nation. They had their own calendar and they had a yearly feast commemorating the time of their formation as a nation by God himself. With time, God would add many more feasts and observances and laws that would eventually give these people a religion, a culture, a law, and of course, a purpose closely aligned with God's ultimate plan to send his son incarnated as a Jewish man to complete the divine plan to save all of mankind. One of these observances was the consecration of the firstborn, which was clearly and closely associated with the meaning and the purpose of the Passover meal. So let's first 
read uh, those verses where God gives this observance. Then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, sanctify to me every firstborn, the first offspring of every womb among the sons of Israel, both of man and beast, it belongs to me. And so Moses introduces the practice of offering every firstborn male and animal as holy unto God uh, in Exodus uh, 13. Now, before giving the details connected with this consecration of the firstborn, God gives Moses another ordinance to commemorate in conjunction with the feast of the Passover. And that is the feast of unleavened bread. Once in the promised land, in the month of Abib, which is the first month of the religious calendar, later referred to as the month of Nisan, after uh, this was done after the Babylonian uh, captivity, uh, the people were to observe the feast of unleavened bread, where each year they would remove all forms of leaven from their homes and eat only unleavened bread. Now, I previously mentioned that before the 14th of the month, all leaven was removed, uh, um, uh, all leaven was removed from, from the house. And then on the 14th, the Passover meal was eaten. And then from the 14th to the 21st was the week of unleavened bread where only this type of bread was to be eaten and no leaven was to be found in the land. The week was then capped off with a day of celebration and worship on the 21st of the month. So before the 14th, they got rid of all the leaven. On the 14th, uh, they ate the Passover meal. From the 14th to the 21st, they ate only unleavened, uh, unleavened bread, okay? So the purpose of this ordinance was to remember and teach each generation how God brought the nation out of Egypt and into the promised land. It was the answer to the question, where do our people come from and how did we get here? Once these instructions are given and another feast is added to the sacred calendar, God finishes giving Moses the details concerning the offering of the firstborn male child and animal what we were talking about just before. So we read in Exodus chapter 13, 11, uh, it says, now when the Lord brings you to the land of the Canaanite, as he swore to you and to your fathers and gives it to you, you shall devote to the Lord the first offspring of every womb and the first offspring of every beast that you own. The males belong to the Lord. But every first offspring of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb. But if you do not redeem it, then you shall break its neck and every firstborn of man among your sons shall, uh, you shall redeem. And it shall be when your son asks you in time to come saying, what is this? Then you shall say to him, with a powerful hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt from the house of slavery. It came about when Pharaoh was stubborn about letting us go, that the Lord killed every firstborn in the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of beast. Therefore, I sacrifice to the Lord, the males, 
the first offering of every womb, but every firstborn of my sons I redeem. So it shall serve as a sign on your hand and as a phylacteries on your forehead, for with a powerful hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt. So the command to devote or to set aside and sacrifice to God every firstborn male and every firstborn male animal was connected to the Passover. Since God spared every Jewish firstborn male child and animal on Passover night, they now belonged to him. In addition to the Passover meal and the week of unleavened bread, God adds a third powerful reminder of the Jewish experience in being freed from Egyptian slavery. And that is the death of every firstborn male child and cattle in the land, which they were miraculously spared from. As a reminder of this, they're to offer uh, to the Lord the firstborn male animal in sacrifice and a sacrifice where no part of the animal was eaten by offering it, which meant that it was a complete offering with no use or value retained by the one sacrificing it. Uh, you know, in other types of sacrifice, you could sacrifice parts of the animal and then keep part of the animal uh, to, to eat. Um, and uh, you, know, uh, you, you had some use uh, from it. But in this particular sacrifice, you burned the entire animal. It was a complete sacrifice. So uh, you did not receive back anything. There was no food value that came back. You lost whatever commercial value you had in that animal, you know, uh, if you could sell it or you know, the wool or whatever. It was a complete sacrifice uh, that you, uh, that you uh, gave uh, to God. Now, a firstborn child, male child, was redeemed or it was bought back. The price for redeeming the child was five shekels of silver paid to the priest when the child was a month old. If an animal, uh, for example, that you were offering was unclean and could not be sacrificed, such as a, like a donkey is what you had, uh, then you could kill it by breaking its neck. In other words, you offer it in death without spilling any blood, or you could substitute a lamb to sacrifice in its place. And so God gives the initial commands here for things that they are to do once they arrive at the promised land, but will add details and further instructions about these things along the way, all right? Now, uh, as the people are poised to leave, God gives them three, or God gives to Moses, three ordinances, the Passover, the unleavened bread, the feast of the unleavened bread, and the sacrifice of the firstborn for the people to keep once they arrive at the promised land. These will serve as teaching opportunities to remember who saved them and how they were saved and at what cost they were saved. Okay, well then uh, we, as we move along in chapter 13, we see that God leads the people. Once the instructions about the ordinances are given, Moses describes their departure and how it was guided. 13 uh, verses 17. 
It says, now when Pharaoh had let the people go, God did not lead them by the way of the land of the Philistines, even though it was near. For God said, the people might change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. Hence, God led the people around by the way of the wilderness to the Red Sea. And the sons of Israel went up in martial array from the land of Egypt. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, for he had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God will surely take care of you and you shall carry my bones from here with you. Then they set out from Succoth and camped in Etham on the edge of the wilderness. The Lord was going before them in a pillar of cloud by day to lead them on the way and in a pillar of fire by night to give them light that they might travel by day and by night. He did not take away the pillar of cloud by day nor the pillar of fire by night from before the people. The shortest route was the Northern way, you know, from where you see the, up in the North of the land of Goshen there, uh, the fertile valley, you know, up the Northern way across and to the land of Canaan. That, that, was the, that was the short route following the Mediterranean coastline and then down into the land of the Canaanites. Of course, uh, this would have necessitated war with the people of that region uh, and an armed conflict that the Jews were simply not trained or equipped to fight. So God takes them on a longer and safer route uh, which will ultimately put them in danger from the Egyptians once again, and we'll learn about that. And you see the, uh, the route that is marked there, that green line, and uh, on the map you see Migdal, and just below there, just that small dot below there, is where they camp. This is the first place that they camp. Notice that they secure Joseph, Jacob's son, who became leader in Egypt during the great famine. Uh, Moses remembers Joseph's request 400 years before that he wanted his bones buried in the promised land. So the Jews exhume his mummified remains and take them along on their journey. God's presence is actually seen as a cloud and as a pillar of fire to guide them and guide their journey, whether they travel day or at night. And so everything is set for the journey to the promised land. But Pharaoh, after recovering from the shock of losing his own firstborn and the death of many in his nation, he realizes that he has allowed the freedom of at least 600,000 able-bodied slaves and the free labor that they provided the state. And so he reverts to normal behavior once again, his hard-hearted, disbelieving self, and God allows him to embrace his stubborn refusal to accept that the God of the Jews is Lord with power over both the creation and mankind and not himself. In other words, you're not God, Pharaoh. The God of the Jews is God, but the Pharaoh will not accept this. And God, as we talked about in another lesson, and God allows him his delusion. So refusing to acknowledge uh, what all the signs and wonders point to, 
the Pharaoh gathers the mighty Egyptian army and leaves to pursue, overtake, capture or kill the Jewish slaves uh, that he now regrets uh, he has let go. So we move on to chapter 14 and we read the first couple of verses there. It reads, now the Lord spoke to Moses saying, tell the sons of Israel to turn back and camp before uh, Pi Hahiroth between Migdal and the sea. You shall camp in front of Baal Zephon opposite uh, by the sea. For Pharaoh will say of the sons of Israel, they are wandering aimlessly in the land. The wilderness has shut them in. Thus, I will harden Pharaoh's heart and he will chase after them. And I will be honored through Pharaoh and all his army. And the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. And they did so. So as he has done in the past, uh, God tells Moses what he should do in positioning the people and what he's about to do uh, of course, he does this in cryptic fashion. Um, they started in the north, uh, the shortest overland route. That's what we were talking about uh, before. Um, uh, but God directs Moses to take the people south and camp right beside the fork of the Red Sea. He predicts that the Pharaoh will see this as confusion. Uh, that the people are lost actually, and Moses is just leading them you know, aimlessly. But God assures Moses that all of this is done as part of his plan to prove once and for all who is the true and the living God. So we see the Pharaoh begins to pursue um, the Israelites, uh, and we go forward in chapter 14. It says, when the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, Pharaoh and his servants had a change of heart toward the people and they said, what is this we have done that we have let Israel go from serving us? So he made his chariot ready and took his people with him and he took 600 select chariots and all other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. The Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he chased after the sons of Israel as the sons of Israel were going, but boldly. Then the Egyptians chased after them with all the horses and chariots of Pharaoh, his horsemen and his army, and they overtook them camping by the sea beside Pi uh, Hahiroth uh, in uh, front of Baal Zephon. As Pharaoh drew near, the sons of Israel looked and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them and they became very frightened. So the sons of Israel cried out uh, to the Lord. Then they said to Moses, is it because there were no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? Why have you dealt with us in this way, bringing us out of Egypt? Is this not the word that we spoke to you in Egypt saying, leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians for it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. So you have you know, the king with the best of his army, the chariots were equivalent to modern day tanks, and he led with 600 select chariots. Many of these uh, were manned, you know, a three man crew. You had the driver, a shield bearer, and a warrior, in addition to the lesser equipped chariots, and also uh, with his foot soldiers. So this lethal force 
caught up to the Israelites who were now pinned between the Egyptians and the sea. And of course, there were a lot of, you know, there was a greater number of, of Israelites than there were Egyptians, but the Israelites weren't armed. Uh, they were not trained as an army, you know, they were sitting ducks, as we would say. So here we witness a familiar scene as the people feeling danger blame Moses for their predicament. Their, cha their charge against him has, well, three components. First, they say, you're reckless, bringing us out here in the wilderness to die. We were enough trouble in Egypt. You've made things worse by bringing us you know, out here. Secondly, he's, you know, they say something like, we told you, we told you it wouldn't work. Why didn't you just leave us alone when we asked you? And then thirdly, they say, we were better off in Egypt. It was hard work, but at least we weren't lost in the wilderness with the army poised to attack us. So the Pharaoh has made his move. Moses has followed God's instructions and the people have voiced their fear. Now it's time for God to act and he does in a most spectacular way. Let's keep reading. But Moses said to the people, do not fear, stand by and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians whom you have seen today, you will never see them again forever. The Lord will fight for you while you keep silent. So Moses believes the Lord and he encourages the people more or less uh, by saying, stand back and watch what the Lord will do to your enemies. Don't say a thing, don't cry, don't wail, don't yell, don't scream, just be silent and observe what God will do. He's thinking that God will just wipe the army out you know, maybe send the angel of death or something since he doesn't see any other, you know, reasonable option, rational option. So we read uh, verse 15, it says, then the Lord said to Moses, why are you crying out to me? Tell the sons of Israel to go forward. As for you, lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it. And the sons of Israel shall go through the midst of the sea on dry land. As for me, behold, I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they will go in after them. And I will be honored through Pharaoh and all of his army through his chariots and his horsemen. Then the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I am honored through Pharaoh, through his chariots and his, uh, and his horsemen. And so God's plan for rescue is quite different than Moses's plan or thought for rescue. His rescue is parting the sea to have the Jews walk across on dry, uh, the dry riverbed and then destroying the Egyptian army uh, you know, did two things. First of all, it provided a dramatic divine rescue. It was not of themselves, but their God who acted in a miraculous way to save them. And then secondly, it was the final proof to the Egyptian people as well as other nations that the God of the Israelites 
was greater and more powerful than uh, any of the gods of Egypt, including the Pharaoh God, whose power was in his army. And so the passage from verse 19 to 29 describes their crossing and the destruction of the Pharaoh and his military. We don't have time to read all of that, but we'll summarize it here. First of all, the cloud and pillar moved behind the people to provide cover from the attacking army while they crossed the sea. You know, a lot of people, a couple of million people across the sea, it takes time. And then Moses raised his staff and a wind parted the sea and allowed the people to cross on dry land. And then the Pharaoh and his army pursued them onto the divided seabed but they became confused and frightened, probably realizing the reality of the miraculous situation they had foolishly rushed into. All of a sudden they're in the middle of the divided sea and they look and they see you know, the walls of water on either side and they realize, wait a minute, this isn't normal. <laughs> this shouldn't be happening. And so they try to turn around and go back to safety of the shore. But their chariots, it says in verses 23 to 25, are all in, in, uh, in disarray. And then finally, the Lord commanded Moses to stretch out his staff once again, and the sea returned to its place. And of course, in doing so, kill the Pharaoh uh, and his charioteers, his horsemen, the army, everybody dies uh, when the sea goes back together again. So we pick up the story in verse uh, 30. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. When Israel saw the great power which the Lord had used against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. This time, of course, all the people were together, and they all witnessed for themselves the great miracle and the rescue that, that God performed on their behalf as the dead Egyptians began washing up on the shore. The final verse says that they not only feared the Lord, who wouldn't, uh, who, I mean, who wouldn't after that display, but they also believed in him and they believed that Moses uh, was uh, uh, the, their God-appointed leader. You know, every time he would say something, they would follow suit, but if anything went wrong or if anything, you know, there was a delay, they were quick to denounce him or quick to complain. But here it says, uh, finally, uh, they see for sure uh, that their God is the God of power, but at the same time, their leader Moses is God's uh, God's spokesman. And that's very important because uh, he would have to uh, provide leadership to this vast number of, uh, of people. And so uh, we, we have something very interesting that comes up right after this, the, the, song, of, uh, the song of Moses. Um, this song or poem was composed and sung to commemorate the rescue of the Israelites from the Egyptian army by the powerful hand of God. It was known in Jewish liturgy as Shirat Hayam, meaning the song of the sea. 
and it was included in Jewish early morning synagogue services from the beginning of the synagogue type of worship. Many scholars believe it may be the oldest piece of sustained poetry in the Hebrew Bible. It is a song of praise to God for who he is and what he has done, repeating various works and characteristics. It also emphasizes the results of what he has done for Israel. It has brought to a holy habitation and other nations, it's made them afraid. You know, it's, made, it's made Israel a holy habitation, but it's made other nations fearful of, of God's people. And at the end, it concludes with a summary statement in verse 19 and a joyful response from Miriam, who is Moses' sister and the women who are singing this song. And so this joyful scene closes the episode and the events of Israel's freedom from slavery. The observances God gives to commemorate the miracles performed to obtain that freedom along with a mighty act by God to rescue the people from sure death or a return to slavery. This is celebrated in a joyful song which is called the Song of the Sea that became embedded in daily Jewish worship when the synagogue system began during the Babylonian captivity some 700 years uh, into the future. And so the people are free, they're safe, they're ready to begin their journey to the promised land. And we'll stop right there and again, perhaps draw a few lessons uh, from what we have read so far. So lesson number one is this, leaders rarely get the credit, but always get the blame. Leaders rarely get the credit, but always get the blame. In the story that we've read, in the passages that we've read, notice how the people were so fast to blame Moses for their predicament when trapped between the army and the sea. You don't hear anyone praising him when the Jews were spared the plagues or thanking him for facing down the Pharaoh at the risk of his own life. My point here is that this phenomenon is common to all leaders. And if you cannot deal with criticism, even unfair criticism, then don't aspire to leadership. Otherwise you will become cynical and defensive, because this is a truism when it comes to leadership. Leaders rarely get the credit, but always get the blame. Another lesson, God often does the unexpected. So pray for his help and guidance, but don't tell him how you want things done. You know, people do that all the time, right? Dear God, you know, uh, I, I need this, and so I want you to do this and this and this and that, and then this will happen, all right? You, you give him the request and then you also give him your plan. You know, God does the unexpected. So for sure, pray for his help. Let him, let him figure the plan out. Moses was confident that God could and would rescue the people. 
All he had to do was burn up or wipe out the Egyptian army so that they could just move on. That was rational, wasn't it? That was a reasonable thing. He knew God could do such a thing. I mean, the angel of death had, had proven it. But God had his plan, which would require a show of faith from the Israelites. They had to walk between the wall of water first. In dividing the sea, God rescued them, yes. And he destroyed the elite Egyptian army, but he also created faith in the hearts of the Israelites. With this miracle, God also established a spiritual precedent for every sinner who in the future would be rescued from the second death by expressing his faith in Jesus Christ as he passed through the waters of baptism to safety on the shores of forgiveness and Christianity. You know, God is a, a multitasker. He does things that affect you now for the problem at hand, but also for things in the past and things in the future. You do the praying, but you let him do the answering in his way and in his time. And if you do that, then uh, uh, you'll have a better relationship with him and you'll be less frustrated um, in, your, in your prayer life. Well, that's our, that's our lesson uh, for today. Uh, we've managed to push forward in Exodus to the point where the people are finally free. That's really the first big part of Exodus, the freedom of the Jews uh, from slavery. Now we move into the second part where they begin they're, um, they're uh, traveling in the wilderness and uh, God begins to give uh, Moses uh, the commandments and the, uh, uh, the various observances and the covenant, of course, between himself and the people. But we'll start talking about that next week if the Lord is willing. Thank you for your attention and we'll see you next time. God bless you.